We're going to focus on verse 19. Maybe get to some things in 20, but we're going to focus on verse 19. I'll just read that this morning in your hearing. He said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Wow. You say amen to God's word. You may be seated this morning. We have preached to you about the foundation of this commission. And then we talked about the faith. We are trusting. We are believing. We don't go unless we believe. We have not been commanded by the President of the United States to do this. It was not the Caesar of Rome that commanded the church to do this. It was not the Jewish Sanhedrin Council that commanded the church to go and teach all nations. It is none other than Christ Himself. And whenever you obey, you trust. Whenever you do that which someone says to do, there's an element of trust that is in that. And so we talked about the faith that is placed in the one. It's a pretty big claim to say all power has been given. All power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. That's what he stated. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That's a big claim. But we confess by the very fact that we go and obey this. We confess by that fact that we believe the one that said that. If somebody came to me and said, listen, I've been given authority to tell you this, and I want you to go and do it. If I did not believe that they had that authority, if I did not believe in that person that said it, I'm not going to do it. That's just that fact. But because I accept the person, because I accept the character of this person, then I accept the claims that they make. I am not in heaven right now. I'm on earth. I have not seen him located at the hand of the Father. I have not seen the resurrected Lord in person. I was not there when he gave the commission, but I do know him. Hallelujah. I do know him today. By faith, he does live in my heart, in my life today. And I know that his authority is real, and I believe the things that are written about him. I believe these things and accept them by faith. And so we talked about that faith. Today, I want to deal with the facts of this commission itself, beginning in verse 19. They talk about five things or so about this commission, the type of commission that it is. Number one, I want to suggest to you that it is an active commission. It is not a commission that is passive. Now, what do I mean by that? This is not a commission that says to the church, you go and or, or you stay somewhere until something happens to you. It is not a commission that says that I am going to bring the nations to your door and all you have to do is be in your house uh, and we'll just, uh, everything's going to come to your door and it will be taken care of. It is not that. That would be passive. The idea is that this requires something on my part. The idea is it's active. You are to go. You are to go. Go from the presence of the Lord and you are to fulfill the commission. There is uh, in the Christian life an aggressiveness. There is in the Christian experience uh, what we call evangelical 
evangelicalism, that we are evangelicals because we do not believe in waiting for the the world to knock on our door. We will knock on theirs. We do not believe in waiting for them uh, to open the door of conversation. We'll open the door. There are times it happens. There are times that uh, that, that it doesn't always refer that we have to make uh, sometimes the first move uh, because sometimes it happens uh, where, where a door is opened by somebody. There's a truth seeker. There's somebody who wants to find out about what we're doing. On the day of Pentecost, uh, they came and they didn't go out preaching on the day of Pentecost per se. The Spirit of God fell and that manifestation of the Spirit opened the door. It created curiosity. It created controversy. Yes, uh, it created a sense that there were questions and then when the question was asked, uh, the church was able to answer the question. It does not always mean that you and I are the ones that are always making the first advance. It doesn't always mean that God's not convicting someone and sending them to us. In the, in the uh, revival that was, and uh, in, in, I want to say it was in the Hebrides Islands, if I'm right, in the Isle of Lewis, somewhere in that uh, uh, territory. But I've read of these revivals that sometimes uh, they were in church uh, and they had been praying and there were people. I, I heard, I was being told this uh, uh, recently that there was a, uh, a, a folks who were in a dance hall and they were in there dancing just doing what they normally do in a dance hall. All of a sudden the conviction of the Holy Ghost fell on that place and they all ran out of there. Didn't even really know whether they were going to ran to church under the conviction of the Holy Ghost crying out to God. One time in the church the preacher looked and said there's not very many people here and, and one of the members got up and went out to the door of the church and said, Pastor, you need to come and look outside. They couldn't even get to the church. Uh, they were lining the roadways up, falling on their faces, uh, on their knees, weeping and wailing and crying out for the conviction of their sin. So the commission does not always mean uh, this idea that, that we knock on a door, though that's okay and that's good. Uh, that's what we, we do and that's fine. Uh, it doesn't always mean that in the sense that we're always taking the first step. God has moved in ways uh, in which he has brought people there. But when they come, uh, somebody's got to be ready. When they're there, somebody's got to be on go. Uh, Our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, Somebody may meet me. Somebody may open up a conversation, but I'm the one that's looking in that conversation for a door to tell them about Jesus. Uh, I'm the one that's on go. uh, That This is not going to be an uh, ordinary conversation, but every event is an opportunity to preach the gospel and we are looking for doors. That's what Paul said. Pray that there may be a door opened up for me that I may preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there is this idea of activity. We do not huddle in a room and wait to be stumbled upon. We do not go in a corner and just hope that we can overcome our cowardice, overcome our bashfulness, overcome our sense of timidity, and to go out and talk to people about something that they're not accustomed to talking about, or that we introduce someone to them that they don't can't see with their eyes, and that it's not in a place, it's not in some kind of event, but it's in the person of Jesus Christ. We're not 
selling a religion. We're here to tell them about somebody who's alive and wants to know them and wants to have communion with them. And telling them that means that there is on our part an activity. He said, go, and I must therefore keep it in my mind that I am ever to be on go. I'm ever to be ready to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. It may be knocking on a door, answering a phone. It may be a, a, a dealing with a fellow worker at work. Whatever capacity it is, it is an active commission that involves watchfulness on the part of the believer. Secondly, and even more importantly, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. I shared with you at General Assembly this year how that this word teach is probably not to, uh, uh, maybe the best translation. It's not necessarily horrible either, but the word is not the normal word for teach. Uh, that occurs later in the passage when he talks about in verse 20, teaching them, which is a different Greek word, which is the idea of instruction. But this word here, the first word, when he said teach all nations, uh, was not the idea of instructing people. It was not the idea of a classroom experience. It is the idea of discipling. It only appears uh, in, the, in this form a couple of times in the scripture. But he talks about go. Literally it is go make disciples. Go disciple the nations. Make disciples of the nations. That's what I want you to see here today that the Lord has commissioned us. Now this of course is going to involve preaching and teaching we'll talk about later. But this idea of disciple is a kind of a lost idea idea and concept in Christianity today. We don't think of ourselves as disciples. We don't call ourselves disciples, though we are. And it's interesting that's not bad necessarily that we don't do that as long as we are conscious of the fact that that is yet who we are. Amen. I don't always call myself a human being, but I am well aware of the fact that I am one, all right? I don't always refer to myself as being human. Sometimes I may act more like a monkey, but nevertheless, I am well aware of the truth and the, and the reality of my personhood. But I want you to understand that in this idea of of disciple. It appears and that was the first uh, uh, concept of the church that they called themselves disciples. It is found uh, numerous times in the book of Acts and throughout the gospels as the, they were talked about, the followers of Christ were talked about as the disciples of the Lord. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. The disciples are in the upper room. The disciples uh, are full of joy and full of the Holy Ghost. The disciples uh, are going here and going there and doing this. They are the followers of Jesus Christ. But the word seems to disappear after we get past the book of Acts and now the more prominent word is we are saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his holy ones. The word Christians only found twice in the scripture. It's not prominent. That's what the world gave us. That's not a title that God gave us. It's not a title we gave ourselves. God, Christ gave us the title of disciple. God gave us the title of saint. And that becomes the more prominent idea. We are the saints. We're in the church. And as the church, the emphasis after the book of Acts was not on actions, acts, and the gospels described the activity of the church. But after that, it became more about the character of the church. Because if the church is not true, her work isn't true. If her heart's not right, her hand isn't going to be right. If she doesn't, is not grounded in true doctrine, she's not going to preach true doctrine. And so it became concerned 
concerned about the condition of those who were sent. Now, having said that, what does this word disciple mean? It involves the idea of sure, in, in, in just the general meaning, it is the idea of being a student or a pupil of somebody. And it is the idea of generally involves the idea of accepting the philosophy and the practices of a certain teacher and becoming that teacher student or pupil and placing your, your destiny in that person's hand. And it has the idea that that person is spouses some philosophy or some practice and if you are a disciple of that person then you follow that philosophy you live by that philosophy you imitate the life of that teacher you learn from that teacher and you understand the things that they say and apply them into your own personal life now I want to talk about what this means a little bit G. Campbell Morgan wrote a very good book on discipleship and uh, I've read and, and at one time years ago uh, taught out of it. But I want to read something that he says to you here this morning. He says, this relationship, referring to the relationship we have with Christ as of a disciple, is not that of a lecturer from whose messages men may or may not deduce application for themselves. It is not that of a prophet merely making a private announcement and leaving the issues of the same. It certainly is not that of a specialist on a given subject, declaring his knowledge to the interest of a few, the amazement of more, and the bewilderment of most. No, it is none of these. It is that of a teacher himself possessing full knowledge, bending over a pupil, a student, and for a set purpose, with an end in view, imparting knowledge, step by step, point by point, ever moving toward a definite end. This, that conception includes also the true ideal of our possession or position. We are not casual listeners. Neither are we merely interested hearers desiring information. Rather, we are disciples looking toward and desiring the same end as the master and therefore listening to every word, marking every inflection of his voice that carries meaning and applying all our energy to realizing the teacher's purpose for us. Such is the ideal let me, if I may, just elaborate on that just for a moment because what is G. Campbell Morgan telling us about this idea of discipleship? First of all, he says it's not the idea that we are going to just an academic lecture, an academic exercise where we just simply sit and listen to Jesus expound and teach about certain topics or subjects. It's not the idea that we just go and sit down in a class at a certain hour of a day and let the professor lecture on the things that are of interest unto him. That's not the idea. Being a disciple is not a classroom exercise. It is not a part-time activity. It is a lifestyle. You are now here to live in the presence of this teacher. And first of all, you must understand you have nothing to teach the teacher. 
he himself possesses full knowledge. You've got nothing to share with him. You have no advice. You have no counsel. You have no input. You have nothing that you can share to shed light on the teacher's philosophy. You don't have anything to offer him that can further him in what he is teaching. You understand where I'm going right here this morning? What I mean by that is this. He is the one that possesses the full knowledge. I'm not here as a teacher. I'm here as a learner. I am not here as the professor. I'm here as the pupil. Glory to God. I'm here to sit and learn at Jesus' feet and know what he would say to me. But it goes even deeper than that. G. Campbell Morgan went on to state, we're not just casual listeners. We're not just here interested in realizing that he can inform us. He has wisdom and knowledge that he can give to us and share to us and we can learn from him. He is smart and we are ignorant. He's intelligent and you and I don't know anything and we're just here to learn, though that be true. But we're not here just to listen to a lecture. We're not here just to follow and understand the principles. We're not here to become simply schooled in a creed or a religious exercise so that you and I can spit out our doctrine. We can tell the world what we believe. We're very learned and academic and intelligent in the things that we know. That's not the mere point. The point isn't this. It's more than a relationship of a teacher and the student. He bends over us. He's looking at each of us individually. The disciple is an individual uh, a commitment. It doesn't refer so much to our, our commitment as a whole, uh, as a whole with the church, uh, but as a disciple, that brings it to little old me. Uh, that brings it down to my life. Uh, that brings it down to my will. That brings it down to my heart. Uh, that brings it down to my desire. That brings it down to God's plan for my life. Uh, where will my feet carry me? What will my job be? What will my uh, mouth be called? to say? What will my ears be called to hear? What will my hands be called to do? Understanding that I'm listening. Hallelujah. Somewhere, this is where the test is going to come in. It comes down to this test of what is he saying to you? And we listen for every word. And we're not just listening for the words we're listening for the tone of voice, the inflection that's in his voice. Was that said with sternness or softness? Was that said in a sense of command? Or was that said with a tenderness in the sense of a, a wooing me and drawing me? How was that? Was that a warning? Or was that something that was just informative on Christ's part? What was the inflection in his voice? When he said that, he had me in mind. Was there something in me? That was deeper that he wanted me to see. Oh, yes. Glory to God. Sometimes and he's not button play a guessing game with us. He lets us know. But understand that we're listening for that voice. And we're listening to know what teacher has to say. Because whatever he says to us as a person must be applied, must be yielded to. So that you and I can march forward. But he talked about this idea of imitation and using every part of our energy to fulfill what he says so that the teaching of Christ is not merely something we debate. It is something we do. It's not something we talk about. It's something we live. And so we're looking at this, and G. Campbell Morgan had it right. He had it pegged. 
But I think he could go a little bit further because this idea of being a disciple again is not merely the idea of Christ inspiring, Christ teaching, Christ giving me everything I need to know and then I launch out and seek to imitate it. It is not in the sense that I want to become a pupil so that I can replace the master. In all other relationships, you have men like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. I saw Sometimes I get them mixed up and I forget who was whose master and who was whose disciple. But they were. They're one of those. Uh, uh, I can't remember which one it was. Was the was the teacher of Alexander the Great. And during his time in that great uh, Greek empire and these uh, Greek philosophers. But the idea was uh, is the teacher would teach uh, and you would have a student. And the student would learn. And one day the teacher would die and the student would take his place. Uh, and then that student uh, would become a philosopher like his teacher. And so these men become great. There is first this Greek teacher, and then he has a student, and then the student becomes great like the teacher. But understand in this one, our teacher never dies. We are not here to learn uh, and thinking one day he will pass off the scene and I will take his place and men will follow me. Not in this one, but in this one I'm here to tell you, you're never going to replace him. You're never going to be above him. You're never going to outsmart him. You're never going to learn more than he has. You're never going to fully know everything. He is always the shepherd. He is always leading. He is always governing. And you will always follow. So, and it's not just coming in, learning the lesson, and then running out and trying to do it. I fear that's been our problem many times as Brother Woods preaches I've, it's had my own challenge with that. We learn something, we see it, we get it, we grasp it, and then we go out and make every effort to do it. It's not wrong for us to have the mentality that we must do it. We must apply it. We must put it in the practice. What's wrong for us is to think that we can go from the master's presence and have success without the master being there, without the master helping, without the master strengthening us. We are not disconnected students so that we say, we'll do our best to do what you're doing. We're going to imitate you, and we're going to follow you by simply imitating what you do. No, sir, it is receiving his strength. It is having him live within us. And then we go out and we do it not by our energy, but by the energy that God provides. We don't do it by the graces of men, but by the graces of God. We don't look to our culture and say, help us build the church. We look to our head and say, you're the chief architect and you will provide every resource that is necessary for the building of the church. What we need most is the Holy Ghost. What we've got to have is the power of God's spirit to be a disciple. So, bear with me just a moment in this this morning. This idea, and it's a tremendous idea, a tremendous idea. Think with me just for a moment. Jesus told us, go disciple the nations. It's an active commission, and it is secondly a covenantal commission. What do I mean by that? When I preach the gospel and I share with a person, 
and I tell them about Jesus Christ dying and rising from the dead. My goal is not simply to have them become a church attender. My goal is not simply to have them be a part of our audience. My goal is not simply to have them be a part of our fellowship. Our, my goal is not to have them adopt certain practices that we have. To dress as we dress, to talk as we talk. So that in that regards, I'm creating a culture and not a church. The church has a culture. But you can have a culture and not have a church. You can't have a church without culture, but you can have a culture without a church, all right? And so understanding here, when I go and make disciples, my aim, my aim is not a notch on my evangelical pistol. My aim is not to say, I preached. My aim is not to say, I told them. My aim is to see them enter into a covenantal relationship with Jesus Christ. My aim is to bring them into the class. My aim is to get them into the school. My aim is to let them know that this is not a mere religious philosophy and we're not asking you to adopt a lifestyle. We are asking you to be united with a man. Glory to God, with the God man. We're not here to ask you to adopt a culture. We're here to bring you into the church which is the body of Jesus Christ and whereby you are baptized into him whereby you are a part of him and he is a part of you whereby he lives his life through you this is not you and the teacher it's the teacher in you and you in the teacher glory to God it's not so much two entities that are working on the same goal but out of separate resources it are two that have been made one whoever's joined to the Lord is one spirit glory to God and my body and my spirit become the very possession of him he's not merely a teacher he's my savior my redeemer he purchased me on Golgotha's hill let's look at a few scriptures help me out here young man this morning Luke's gospel 6 and 40 help me out we're going to look at a little bit at a few scriptures that talk about this some concepts this covenantal relationship a covenant relationship. This is critical. We know it. We've got to see a change. We have got a multitude of people in America who say they are Christian. There are, is more Christian paraphernalia, resources, radio programs, concerts, churches than our nation has ever had. I've said this before. Growing up, a Christian radio station was unheard of. My neck of the woods. You can go there today and find various ones. There was a local TV station where a preacher could go and preach for now and then. Paid and you'd get on the air and you could preach on on t local TV station it was. It wasn't anything broadcast beyond the local community. You could do that. And maybe here and there in a local radio program. But a radio station or TV station that was devoted to Christian ideals and activities was simply not very prevalent in the culture that I grew up in. And now it's everywhere. 
I've got more access to books today than I did in my youth. I remember that in my youth. There were books that existed, but I have no access to them. And today, many that, that were out of print have been put back in the print. We've got more talk and writings about creation than we've ever had. As evolution has grown, so hasn't the teaching and the exposure of creation. The debates have grown. The access is gone. America cannot claim ignorance. I'm going to tell you that right now. We cannot claim that we don't have access to these things. The Internet is full of them. There are churches. Uh, it seems all, all around the place you've got all kinds of access to Christian activity. But everything that says it's Christian is not Christian. And I'm watching a lot of people that say they're Christian. And then I look at the music. I look at their lifestyle. I look at things they do. I see no difference between them and the world. And then I look at their attitudes and their perspective. And I will tell you they are not Christian. And a lot of people say, I don't think you can say that, Brother Woods. Well, I am saying it. If you don't like that, you don't like it. But I'm telling you that a large part of this crowd, uh, even that is in Christian uh, Christianity today, they're not saved. Uh, they've never been born again. They've never entered into a covenant relationship with Christ. They're not a disciple. They may know the doctrine. Uh, they may have learned things about Christ. Uh, they may imitate certain activities, uh, but they don't bear the fruit. Uh, they don't bear the spirit. Uh, they don't have the atmosphere. And they don't project uh, the sense that Christ lives and dwells. Uh, there's no sense of holiness right. in their nature. Right. I'm just of the opinion you can't be have the Holy Ghost living in you and parade around naked. Amen. A man who'd been full of the devils had that much sense when he got delivered. And he was pre-Calvary and pre-Pentecost. And he had enough sense to put clothes on. I'm just of the belief that when you get Christ in you, I believe in teaching it. I believe in preaching it. But I believe there will be things that are immediately made knowledgeable to your person. And they're going to be immediately in your life. Activities that have to cease. Words that have to quit coming out of your mouth. Places you can't go to anymore. People you can't be around anymore. Things that you can't do that you used to do. But if you can be saved and there is no interruption in your life. There's no interruption in your activity. There's no change in your attitude. There's no change in your appearance. There's no change in your aspiration. I'm here to tell you, you never got united yeah. with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that has lived and died for us. If your lifestyle is still the same old you that has always been, except you've taken on a different conversation, you are simply not saved. We must become disciples. We must be united with the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Salvation is a union between a man and God, yes. a God that's holy, that's right. a God that's true. Uh -huh. Let's look and examine some statements the Lord makes. Luke 6 and 40 says what, Brother Nathan? The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect is as, shall be as his master. Now let's look for a moment what that says. The disciple is not above his master. That first of all says that he looks and he tells that. This comes on the tail end of his sermon in the plain which followed the sermon on the mount. 
He gave that in Matthew 5. Luke 6 is the Sermon on the Plain. And he has given them his kingdom ideal. He has told them in that address on the mountain they would suffer persecution for his name's sake. He has told them that, there are, that he has called them to a righteousness that exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. In the plain, he's pronounced certain woes upon them if they didn't live a certain way. He has called them to a life that is far greater in moral commitment than the law. It is not a life that is less than the law. It's a life that actually completes and fulfills the law. It's not a life of moral laxity. It's a life of moral perfection. And I'm telling you, he's probably got some heads turning in that place. But he's telling them something. Listen, you're in my school and you can look at my life. And first of all, I want you to know something. You are not above the master. The disciple is not above the master. Whatever the master experiences, you can look for it to happen to you. Whatever the attitude of the world is to him, you can expect the same attitude. Whatever the he does, his activity. You're not going to escape that. In other words, you're not going to get a soft road while he gets a hard one. You're not going to get treated good by the world while the world is his enemy. It's not going to be your friend. It's not going to be that the devil is going to take it easy on you while it took it hard on him. He's not going to bear a cross and you just get to wear a crown without bearing a cross. It isn't going to happen. Whatever that master does, you can expect that you're going to walk in the footsteps. You're going to experience the same thing. You are not above the Lord. Amen. You know how many times in our life, though, we think we should be treated better than we really are? You know how much even in our language we either say it to ourselves or to each other, you don't deserve this. I don't deserve this treatment. I don't deserve the sacrifice. I don't deserve this happening. I don't deserve this kind of difficulty. What did I do to deserve this? <laughs> Have you forgotten whose school you're in? Just look around and look at the master and I'll ask you, what did he deserve of all that he got? Did he deserve Calvary? No. Did he deserve reproach? No. Did he deserve ridicule? No. Did he deserve trial and difficulty? No. But he didn't do it because he deserved it. He did it because he was devoted. He went through it because he came to do the Father's will and not his own. And you need to understand you're not better than he is and we have no right to preach some kind of worldly philosophy that says, I don't deserve this. I should be treated better. We need to get rid of this language that comes out of our mouth uh, relative to our person and we hear it I hear it far too frequently among us uh, that's not fair it's not fair that I have to go through this it's not fair that I have to endure this it's not fair that I should who do you think you are who do you think you are whose school are you in you're not in the school of America you're in the school of Christ you're not in the school of some pillar prophet you're in the school of the crucified one you're not in the school of some kind of slouch you're in the school of he who came to live and die and give his life a ransom for many hallelujah you weren't promised a rose garden. Come on. 
You weren't promised a life of ease. God didn't promise you a life that would never experience heartache. When you got saved, he didn't look at you and say, you're special and you get an easy life. You won't have to have fire. You won't have to have death come to your door. You will never experience loss in your life. If you'll just do what I say to do, everything's going to just be peaches and cream. You never have that kind of thing tell you. He told you, and when he was talking to you, you can look down and see the nail scars in his hands. When he was talking to you, you know the road. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, you can see the cross on his own back. You can see his own burden. You can see his own rejection. And they have not done anything to you that wasn't first done to our Lord. It's not fair. Our standard of life is not fairness. Our standard of life is Christ-likeness. I am not here to ask for certain circumstances. I'm here to ask for character to endure whatever circumstance. That's what Christianity does. It doesn't pray for easygoing. It prays for strength to go wherever it needs to go. The disciple's not above his master. But everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. This tells us something else about this. It tells us that in your life, you there is a goal that he has for you. And that goal is to be like him. And that is the standard of perfection. Now let's, let's understand something very quickly here about perfection. Let's not get a humanistic concept of perfection. Let's have a biblical concept of perfection, okay? The humanistic concept of perfection is no flaw according to the human critical eye. The world looks more for physical flaws. The world looks more for flaws that go against their concepts and their ideas. I don't know about you, but I'm glad the world is not my judge. Because the world can't see motives. The world can't read minds. The world can't understand intentions. The world cannot also see the overall scheme of a man's life and where he is headed. So perfection, biblical perfection, is not the idea that I will become Christ. Biblical perfection is not the idea that I will reach a place in my Christian life where nothing else can be changed or added to me. When you talk about something that's perfect in an intrinsic sense of perfection, such as we talk about God, when something becomes perfect as God is perfect, in the sense of his essential nature and being, 
then it therefore can no longer cannot be modified. If you modify it, you'll mess it up. If you add to it, you'll mess it up. If you take away from it, you'll mess it up. Relative to God's character, relative to God's nature, He is infinitely perfect. Nothing can be done to improve upon His person. You can't improve God. You can't change Him. We will never reach that because that is not the idea of perfection that He is wanting in us. I will never reach the God-like perfection that brings me to a place that you can never add anything to me or you can never change me. No, I am always going to be able to grow in Christ. My knowledge can ever expand. My experience can ever be deepened. My love can ever be stretched. While I am in Christ, he is infinite and he can always woo me and always teach me. But Christian perfection is reaching a place of maturity so that when people see you, they see you and treat you just like Christ. They look at you and understand that his essential basic character it's in you. You're committed to what he's committed to. You live like he lives. His philosophy has ingrained in your life and you have reached a place of maturity where you are devoted, where are you committed, where you are mature, where you are making wise decisions and the general uh, uh, direction of your life is heavenward and the general outlay and outworking of your life is righteous and it's true. There may be a mishap once in a while. There may be an error in judgment from time to time time. There may be a moment in which weakness overwhelms you here and there, but the general tenor of your life and direction is victory and living in the power of Christ, living wisely, living appropriately, and being a man or woman that God designed you to be. In other words, you're faithful, you're true, you're there. You're living maturely. That's perfection. It's living according to the level that Christ has brought you to. So what I want you to understand in this is that Christian perfection, that in this class, Christ is aiming to change you. You have a need to be perfected. If you ever get to the place where you think, I don't need any change, you are in trouble. So from the get-go, when you come in, he's not just here to change your mind. He's here to change your whole being. He's here to mold you and to perfect you. That is the philosophy of this teacher. And his perfection is to bring you so that men see his life in you. That's what they did. You see, when we get to that crowd over in the book of Acts, I think there are things that these guys have forgotten. The Sanhedrin, there was a dark night some time before, months, 
maybe even a year or two before. I don't know the exact time span between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 3, 4, and 5. But there could be as much as two or three years that have went by. The gospel has been being preached and, and, and to the people in Jerusalem. That man that was lame, healed at the gate, the lame man that was healed, wasn't healed 15 days after Pentecost, all right? There was time that went by and the church has grown and expanded and we get a a synopsis of their life and then Luke pulls out an event that became a turning point in the life of the church. That's what he does in Acts. He pulls out these, uh, 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 we call it a watershed event. A watershed is, is like a mountaintop. When you have a watershed, you have a place where water comes down and where basically, if I could put it in a very uh, uh, sense of a uh, uh, simple way, the raindrop is divided so that part flows one way and part flows another way. It becomes a dividing point uh, so that at this point, uh, if you turn this way, you're going west. If you turn that way, you're going east. You're at a place that's a watershed. A watershed moment uh, is a moment that's a changing moment. It puts something in a different direction or it becomes a moment that is a crisis uh, that brings uh, a a new turn of events into the church and things are going now in a new direction if you will and so we, we arrive there's some time going on between Acts 2 and Acts chapter 3 but when we get there a layman is being healed and these men now they, they get in there and they preach after this man is healed why are you looking at us so strange wasn't our holiness that did it wasn't our righteousness that did it it was his name and faith in his name it was Jesus Christ whom you crucified has made this man whole. Well, a long story short, over the next days they find themselves answering to the Sanhedrin and going to jail over that thing. And then the finally's going to come down. They're looking around and saying, where did these guys come from? They've forgotten things that Jesus did. They aren't seeing him anymore. They aren't seeing him. But then they're asking because these men are commoners and they are facing the social elite. They are facing the intellectual elite and they're not timid and backward. Most folks when they saw a Pharisee were like, they're going to be like, that's a holy man. Hey, we do it. How many of us? You get around a professor, you get around a doctor, you're just kind of awed by that. Someone who has great academic credentials, you're like, whew. It's like, I ain't saying anything. I'm keep my mouth shut. Because if I say something, it's going to come out dumb, ignorant. It ain't going to sound right. Because, man, that guy, he knows it. He's smart. He knows everything. Look at that guy. We, we get timid. We get backward. You put us in a place where there are men that are high in society and we're like, hmm, kind of standoffish. But these men are standing, they're not rude, but they're standing before this crowd that's the social and intellectual elite of their day, the scribes, the men who know the law, and they're standing before them and they're, they're not timid. They're not fearful. They're very bold to answer them. We command you not to teach and preach in the name of Jesus. Well, I don't know about that, fellas. But we can only speak, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Right, right. 
whether it be right to obey God or men, you judge. But these men speak simple, but they speak straight. And they seem to have no fear. And they'll begin to ask the question, where'd they come from? Where'd they get that from? Where'd they get that boldness? Where'd they get that wisdom? Where'd they get that answer? How did these men get to be that? I don't remember that. That fellow, I seem to remember you one time. I seem to remember you standing in the shadow somewhere denying that you ever knew him. Oh, yes, and now you are boldly proclaiming him. Where have these fellas been? But the Bible said they took knowledge that they would have been with Jesus. They took knowledge that they had been with Jesus. What are you saying, Brother Woods? That's what it was. When these men, they didn't take knowledge of them uh, that they had went to this school or they were part of this church uh, or they were part of this group or they had been over here. What they did is they made a connection. These men uh, have been connected to Jesus. Uh, Now we know where their philosophy comes from. Uh, Now we know where their boldness comes from. Uh, We saw it in the eyes of the Nazarene. Uh, We saw it in the nature of the Nazarene. He who would go into the temple and turn the tables over and rub a a lasso and take them and chase them out of the temple. He who had no problem questioning our authority and stood with boldness, though he was a peasant and a poor man from Nazarene, I know now where they've come from. He that is perfect will be as his master. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I mean, quickly, one more. Go with me over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. You're in Christ's school. He's going to perfect you. He's going to change you. And he wants to bring you to the same experience that he has. The same philosophy, perspective, concepts, beliefs, everything. Just like him. John 8, I believe down around 31. Let me have my reader over here again. Read for me, son. Then said Jesus to those who would believe on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. One more. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now what's happened in John chapter 8? You remember the story. Early part of John chapter 8, they brought an adulterous woman into his midst. Jesus has said, he that's without sin, let him cast the first stone. They all walked out being convicted by their conscience. And Jesus then, who was only now one witness, will not condemn her by the law, as God he could, but as man he could not condemn her. Because the first question he asked her, he says, woman, where art thou accusers? Where are thine accusers? Because the law says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything must be established. She had a whole bunch of witnesses early on, but now she has none. So now, even the law won't condemn her because there's no witness to condemn her. And you don't have to testify against yourself. And so, here comes Christ, and it's just Him now. He's only one. The law, as a man, will not allow Him to condemn her because one witness cannot condemn another. You have to have two or at least, at least two or three. So Jesus was not saying, no problem, adultery is kind of, I'm looking light at that in my kingdom, and it's not a big deal. Uh, I just come to overwipe this. No, the law will not let him now condemn her because he's only one man. Right. 
and he's here as man, and one witness cannot condemn the woman. So he says, where are your accusers? I don't have any, none. And when he says, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He's not so much speaking out of his humanity now. He speaks out of his deity. As God, he could condemn her because there's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. As God, there is the three witness, threefold witness of the Trinity. But he is not so much here to express uh, that sense of divinity. And in reference to them, they only see him as man, and he must operate as that. But he is calling her to repentance, and he does realize that she has been handled unjustly, and he deals with that situation. But the fact is, is he's convinced them of sin, and they cannot convince him of sin. And he comes out of that scenario and says, I am the light of the world. Whosoever will follow me shall have the light of life. Oh, glory. And they go on, then they begin to con converse about, ah, you bear witness of yourself. It's not true. And on and on. And, and they go through talking about that. And then there's some that believe on him and others don't. But then he looks at those and said, those Jews that believed on him, if you continue in my word, John likes that word continue. It's translated various ways in the gospel of John. We read about it in John 15 and said, If any man abide in me and my words abide in you and you abide in me, you can ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. He said, Abide in me. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. That, that word translated abide there is the same word as continue. It means to dwell. It means to live. It means to have permanent housing. It means to, to put down roots and stay in a place. And Jesus said, if you'll put some roots down, if you'll abide, if you'll stay in my house, glory to God, if you'll continue in my word, if you will let my word be your dwelling place, oh glory, if you will let my word become your permanent house, he said, then I'll tell you, that's one thing you're going to get a hold of, you're going to have truth. There's no lies in my house. There's no lies in my word. My word is truth. If you will dwell in my teaching, if you will dwell under my scholarship, if you will dwell under my mastery, if you will live under my word, then you are going to know truth. And that truth is going to bring a liberty to your life that you've never known before. He said, he said this, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You're my true disciples. Just a second. I, I'm going to close it right here. You'll be my true disciples. Mm. In other words, a disciple is not a starter only. He finishes. Right. A starter or a disciple is not somebody who has simply adopted Jesus. It is somebody who is living in Jesus. He's not just a friend. He's the very environment in which we dwell. Now notice something. So this idea of being a disciple and becoming a disciple of Christ is the idea that you are going to have to make his very teaching and word your dwelling place. You got to live in that. You know why we think like the world? Because we live in it. Because the internet is our dwelling place. Because Facebook is where we continue. Because the writings of men and the opinions of men, the people that we're around all day long, we listen to that. And we hear somebody say something, you know, well, I think that's right too. Well, that makes sense to me. Did you measure it by the book? 
Did you hold it up in the light of Christ? That's what a disciple does. A disciple just doesn't accept his own reason. A disciple doesn't say, well, that seems good to me. Well, that seems right to me. Well, yeah, that makes sense to me. Let me tell you something. There's two sides to every argument. And don't judge it until you have looked at what Christ says about it. Oh, yes, sir. I have found that. I have found folks. I had this recently. I did something that wasn't probably smart to do. But I did it. I had somebody come to my house. I knew what it was going to be. At least I was on my guard this time. And uh, they, 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 they wanted to come to my house and test my water. Well, I, I said, what are you going to try to sell me? Oh, we're not going to sell you anything. We're just going to test your water, and we're going to let you know the product that you have, you know, whatever happened. We're going to be on our way. And I thought, yeah, right. Anyway, so it is. So they come in, and they're testing my water. Well, what was supposed to be 45 minutes became two hours. And there's more to the story. Anyway, I'm going through this, and I'm, I'm sitting here, and, and they're putting my water. It's really good, man. It works really good. And they got this little old contraption that's sitting right there, and they're running this water through it. And then, and then they start talking about uh, eventually what they got to sell me. And, then, and I, I'd be afraid to even tell you what it cost. It scared me near about to death. But nevertheless, they got this business. And I, and I looked at it, and I said, well, listen, why can't I just have one of those? I know that don't cost 10000 you know. Look, at that thing, I mean, you're running the water through that. It's working. It's given to me. Why is it I've got to have three things to do what that one little thing's yeah. doing? Well, you get this water softener, and then you get this other thing that goes under your sink, and then you see you got this content in your water, so you need this other machine. You ain't got but one. You just did it with one. Why do I need three? And then I start asking questions. Well, it's... Bless her heart. She didn't have answers to the questions. But anyway, I knew where I was at, and, and I got my water tested and, 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 and into that story. But the point of the matter is, is that you, you get this thing and you get this idea that at first it looks like this is really good. This is what it's all about. Man, I, I, I mean, all of a sudden I start feeling better about my water. I, I, you start feeling I'm going to die. I, I got this water that's given to me. I mean, look, she put some little chemical in there. She she puts it in her water. Then she puts it in my water. Man, mine looks like I got gross organisms swimming around it and all this kind of mess is coming down to the bottom. And hers is just as clear as a crystal. I drink hers. It tastes nice and sweet. I drink mine. It tastes like you, you licked an iron pipe. And you know, it just, uh, I'm like, what in the world? And then you're starting to feel bad. And then, and then it dawns on me. Wait a second here. And then and I talked to her. I knew I had some issues with my water. I said, I, I get on the phone with this person and she has to call her boss. And you, my boss wants to talk. All right, I talked to you. And I, and I, and I said, ma'am, I'm going to tell you one thing. I've been drinking this stuff for 20 years, and it ain't killed me yet. I seem to be doing fine. I've got good health. I seem to be trucking along just good. And it's been that way for 20 years. And she's kind of, well, that's the way it is. I'm going to tell you something. The world can present you a case. It sounds like it's right. It sounds like it's reasonable. But somewhere, you've got to hold it up in the light of that word. You've got to hold it up under the mirror of Jesus Christ and say, what's the Lord got to say about it? I want to know, does it measure up to the book? Right. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. You're going to learn truth. If you're in my school, you're going to learn truth. You understand that? You're going to learn truth. That tells us something about being a disciple. Disciples are guided by truth. Amen. 
You see, that's what I was looking for. There was some truth about her test, but there were some things that didn't quite measure up. And quite frankly, I began to realize, you know something? I am having to take her word for every little green and orange thing she's got in those bottles. How do I know what she's got in there? She might have put a rattlesnake's venom in that water or something. I don't know what it was. But I did know this. I just simply told the person, I said, you know what I'll do? I'm going to do some research. What are you going to research? You research us? I said, yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to research this process a little bit. I realize I have some issues. I'm not denying that. I knew that from the beginning. That's why I consented to it. But at the same time, I'm not willing to stake a major investment on one person's demonstration. I'd like some witnesses here. But how many times do we accept the opinion of a fellow worker, of someone in this world, of a son, of a daughter, of a philosopher, and we do not take any time to measure it to that book. There is a search that you and I are after. I'm after one thing, truth. I want to know the truth. That's what I want to know. I want to know, is it real? I want to know, is it right? I want you to get down. Get rid of all of this fancy talk. Get rid of all of your, your front you're putting on. I want to know the truth. Jesus says, in my class, there's no put on. In my school, there's no shame. In my school, there's no deception. In my class, I'm here. Stand to your feet. In my class, I want you to know there's no hypocrisy. Whatever I tell you, take to the bank. Whatever I say to you is genuine. Whatever I say to you is pure. There's no gimmicks. There's no games. There's no undercurrent. There's nothing you have to sit back and say, well, I better look at that. You ain't got to check the word of Jesus. You ain't got to go back and say, I better check him against the philosophers. They're not the standard. He is the standard. Glory to God. And I will tell you, his word comes with the witness of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. He said, my words are not mine, but they're the water for fathers. Whatever the Father says, that's what I say. Oh, glory to God. And the Holy Spirit comes. And Jesus said, he'll take the things of mine and he will give them unto you. The Spirit speaks of Christ and Christ speaks of the Father as a threefold witness. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And let them know that they are a disciple of Jesus Christ. What effort do you make to discover truth? And how important is the truth to you? Or are you okay as long as somebody tells you what you want to hear? Will you take truth if it means hurt feelings? Will you take truth if it means a condemnation of your life? Will you take truth if it means you must change? Will you take truth if it embarrasses you? Will you receive the truth at all cost? Will you take truth even if it means that somebody might think you're not as good 
as they thought someone's opinion about you might change. For the Christian, our environment, our world is truth. We're disciples of Christ. Glory to the Lamb of God.